You're listening to Nakedly Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriters. My name is Mark Lintzmeyer. My guests for episode 116 are Alexander Hecke, who has been a member of the German experimental group Einstützende Neubauten since close to its inception in 1980, and his partner, the American Danielle De Picciotto. She's lived in Germany for a long time. She was a singer for bands called Space Cowboys and The Ocean Club. She's an artist and filmmaker. She had done video work with Neubauten. They got married in 2006. Alexander would create music for some of her art installations. We're going to be focusing exclusively today on the music that they've made together, which really started with improvisations around 2010. They had an album in 2011 called Hitman's Heel, and then in 2014, the recording Needle at Sea Bottom with Larry Seven. Then we have Perservantia, credited to Danielle and Alexander. And finally, the band name that they use now was unleashed, Hake de Picciotto. They've had four releases under that name since 2016. Two of those were Meditation Albums first, Unity, and you're right now listening to Let There Be Joy from their 2018 collaboration, Joy. Today we're largely going to be focusing on their two more song-oriented albums. From 2019's The Current, we're going to be talking about the song The Banishing and then Third from the Sun. Then we'll look back to the 2017 album Menetekel and discuss the song Prophecy. Now you notice that song has a very prominent poem by Danielle sitting up front. We're going to conclude by listening to another poem-based song called Survivors. It's off the Danielle De Picciotto solo album Deliverance from 2019. She plays all the instruments on that, but Alexander engineered the whole thing, so it's another aspect of their collaboration. For more information, look up hakedepicciotto.de. For more on this podcast, see nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. And if you'd like to support the effort and get an ad-free feed, go to patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic. So I will have played a little bit of Let There Be Joy from your second meditation album that you did together, 2018's Joy. We're going to get pretty quickly to The Current and hear a couple songs off of that. Did you want to say a little about, I'm sure my listeners who are familiar with Alex's work at all are familiar with Einschütze <laughs> de Neubauten, which I have some background in, 1981 through the present, right? That band is still in existence. You're going to have a new album in 2020. Is that right? Yes, that's right. We're about finishing the uh, recording process, about to accomplish it. And yeah, it's going to be released sometime in late April, May 2020. All right. So hopefully I'll be able to talk to somebody in the band about that when it comes out. But that's not what we're talking about today. We're going to focus on the work that the two of you have done together, which goes back. So you've been working together for 20 years or something, it said. But I see the first album that's sort of actually attributed to both of you around 2014. Can you say a little about how this evolved into you two working together? We kind of started in 2001. Back then it was kind of that we did a lot of audiovisual things together. I had been doing a lot of things with like Super 8 projections and a lot of like art installations. And then I invited Alex the first time I think I was doing an art installation like in, uh, in a theater and I asked him to do some music to it. And it somehow worked out so well that we started doing stuff like that. We started composing complete shows. One was about like electronic music and visuals about electricity. Another one was based on a book called The Ship of Fools. I mean, I've been doing music forever and at one point, it was kind of like, well, you know, then why don't we just start really doing something together? And then it became more and more of a thing of like, we were started doing music together with the visuals. And we released a couple of DVDs with that kind of stuff. We performed with the Tiger Lilies. And then at one point, we somehow started finding our sound. And that then became 
Passive Arancia. We did an album before that called Hitman's Heel, where we were still kind of experimenting around. It was more ballady. But basically, with Passive Arancia, we really found our sound. We'd kind of figured out, because we're quite the opposites. I come from a classic training. Alex is self-taught and one of the ingenial dilettants. <laughs> of Berlin. He's tall. I'm not that tall. He likes very loud. I usually am not that loud. It took time to find out how to get these things together. But as we like opposites, we were kind of like, we're going to find the way. And then we found it. And we're really happy with that in the meantime. And so that's when it really started rolling for us. And has the evolution been? I know listening to that first album, Prince of Rancia, it seems like it's more kind of like the meditation music, these static long soundscapes, whereas at least on the new album, we've got some more songs that are, you know, four or five minutes that seem like songs as opposed to pieces. Has that been part of the evolution of working together? The stuff that we developed on Passive Arancia was based on improvisations and, and just like starting to resonate with each other and, and getting vibrations going. And we started adding more lyrical content in the next one in Minitekel, where Danielle would do more spoken word and we were more taking a stand on what was actually happening in the world around that time in 2016. And if you remember, that's why it turned out to be a rather dark record. With this one, we wanted to infuse it with more like energetic kind of material. So there's more rhythmical tracks and there's more like a get up and take a stand and we try to infuse our music with more energy and more fire, if you will, than the, the last two ones. Yeah, also because when we were playing our shows last year, we toured a lot. We noticed that we kind of felt like playing stuff that was faster, too. I mean, it's really nice to play the slow stuff, but it somehow felt as if the show wasn't complete without kind of building up that energy. And so we thought we should really compose more songs that are faster so that we have the whole scope within a show's possibility. All right, so we're going to play The Banishing from The Current in full. Do you want to say a little about that before we play it, and then we'll talk more in detail? We were thinking of doing something like Halloween or what's the one in, in Austria where we went to see where they wear those animal costumes and stuff, where they run oh, around yeah. the street and they it's, rattle stuff. Yeah, it's it's like a winter carnival kind of thing, like the Krampus celebrations in just uh, before Christmas time where the locals in, in Austria are basically like the mountain people. They like to get dressed in these monster devilish costumes and, and they do these wild dances and uh, scare the evil spirits away. Yeah, so it's kind of like, you know, the usual harvest thing where like you try to get the good spirits to come and get rid of the evil spirits. And we felt like doing a song, song like that. We've never done that before, so it was it was fun. <laughs>
can you say a little about the actual mechanics of this coming together? This sounds like a programmed rhythm bed to start. Is that right? Yes, it is programmed using samples that were played by me. Okay. And then reprogrammed and, and rearranged <laughs> electronically. It's funny because, you know, we're two people. But we play so many instruments and we do so many things. We've kind of hit the limit of what one can do. So it's kind of like that was something played by me. Yeah. And that was something played by I was looking me. at Dan- I was looking at Danielle questioningly while I was saying that. Was a- it's really funny. I mean, you know, we could actually use three or four musicians on stage to help us with everything that we're doing. And we might have to do that with the next album because we just do so much. Okay, so it's more like playing a pattern and then digitally manipulating it to make it that fast and tight and repetitive rather than, you know, searching around patches for appropriate sounds. We don't work much with patches. Well, we don't work with presets at all. We like to build our own patches. I wrote a sound set for a virtual synthesizer in 2009. I did this thing for a company called Uhe, U dash H-E, a German company that builds uh, virtual synthesizers, and they have one product called Zebra, and I wrote a sound set for that. And that's been my kind of my mise en plat <laughs> for the last 10 years that I use a lot. So all the electronic sounds are basically programmed by us. Just the selection of instruments within that initial rhythm bed there is great, that you're playing some kind of recognizably, you know, there's something that corresponds to what would be a hi-hat and what would be a kick and what would be a snare, but the kick is not low so that you have room for this. You can go, you know, the low is still open for something to come later. The hi-hat is some kind of windshield wiper is what I wrote. Yes. Some sound that's not a hi-hat. There's a physical analog in, you know, hitting something that is where this initially came from, or you're at this point working with the virtual synth for those particular sounds. Now, these are acoustic sounds, and they've been pitched, and they're they're playing back at the wrong speed, basically. Ah. Yeah, and one of the reasons is that I usually have a problem, at least in our music, is to have anything sound like a regular drum set. I don't like that. Something like a windshield wiper, for instance, is a very good example. Not that I don't like the drum set in general, but in our music, I don't like anything to I'm very, very sound-specific, so I don't like anything to sound like a normal drum set. So that's where I'm always like... This has to sound different. Yeah, because you visualize the sounds you hear, you know. We don't want anyone to basically see a physical hi-hat in the music or see a physical snare in in our music. Even if the source material might be a physical snare, it will not convey that image. Right. So does that go for the other sounds as well? So right after you've established this rhythm bed, uh, this kind of low guitar-like drone comes in and then the melody, which sounds like kind of a decent synth string patch. But is that, you know, actual violin put through processing or something? Yep, that's I played that. So you're going through all this effort with acoustic instruments to get something that is like, that particular riff sounds like kind of one of the staples in techno. I mean, this whole song sounds like a techno song, but this is the most low-tech techno in some ways, I guess, that I've ever heard. <laughs> Funny. I never yeah. thought of a techno track. <laughs> 
It's like a tribal ethnical techno. <laughs> it's techno without electricity. So let me uh, actually jump to 40 seconds in where that bass sound that you introduced sort of gains an extra octave layer and, you know, an extra harshness. We would introduce the bass thing. Now it's, you know, it's actually really, again, are you layering on top of that? Are you just turning on effects? What is making that bass sound open up quite so much? I think if I remember correctly, it's not even a bass. I think it's, it's a, yeah, a bass. It is a bass. It's a bass. Yeah. Usually what we do is like, I say, I want a really, really, really heavy and evil bass now. So then Alex gets the bass. I remember you played it and you put it over different amps. I met this gentleman from Bombay, India. He has a company called Animal Factory Amplification, and he built this distortion unit that, as opposed to other distortion units, doesn't eat up bass frequencies, but actually adds bass frequencies. It's called the God Eater. And on his panel, <laughs> it, it has the, uh, you know, like a little reprint of uh, Goya's Kronos painting, you know. Okay. And, Francisco Goya, you know, like the corner is biting off his son's head. Yes, yes. <laughs> and so the knobs on the on the effect don't tell you what they do. Instead, they have the, the names of the six moons of Saturn or the six <laughs> gods that Kronos devoured, you know, Demeter and Zeus and, uh, you know, all of them. And, and that's that's my go to bass distortion pedal these days. <laughs> All right, and then we actually get singing here. This is what makes this an actual song. So was this whole album a concept album? We did have a kind of a concept. And one of them was, you know, that we wanted the energy, that we wanted something that we could play on stage that had more energy. It was also all the music that we do. We obviously play it for at least two years. So whatever we compose is going to like affect our lives. We also had the really strong urge to do something that would affect our lives in a way that it would like give us a positive energy push. Because at the moment, in general, things are kind of difficult and depressing everywhere in a way. I mean, there's a lot of depression around just energy wise. And when we're going around meeting people and traveling, because, you know, we're nomads, so we are in constant connection with people. Um, it's easy to get depressed quickly because there's so many different reasons for depression. And we wanted our art or our music to give us a certain energy to like have the strength to stay positive and, and healthy and push forwards and find answers or whatever, all of that. And so that was kind of the basic theme of this album. Because of that, it also does touch a couple of darker things just to like kind of, you know, understand what the dark things are energy wise and try and push through that to get to some kind of positivity. That's kind of the basic thing. And it sounds conceptual, but it's also, it really is just also something that's musical in a way. I actually had Prophecy in mind, which is from the other album. So we're going to talk about that at the end of the interview, the actual getting kicked out of Eden, but just the fact that this is called The Banishing and has this obviously religious sort of imagery in it made me feel like this was somehow part of the same effort. I mean, it is in a way. I mean, you know, Prophecy in the last album was a lot darker and the banishing was kind of a reaction to that, thinking, okay, you know, in our last album, 
we really got caught up kind of in like, you know, the difficult things in life. And in this album, we kind of want to banish them and and get back to that original energy that we have and want and and go back to being, yeah, energetic. And so first thing you have to do is to banish. Exactly. Like a, a banishing is like a preparation for a ritualistic setting and a live show, for example, is a ritual, if you will. And in order to clear the space, to make room for something else, you have to banish all, exactly. the, all the, the crap that's floating around. Yeah. <laughs> wash away my sins. All right. So there's, we have a verse of come wash away my sins. And then it's not a prayer. It's not come wash away. It's just let this happen. Help me cleanse my soul. Is there a theological difference there that this is more self-help than entreating God or something? Essentially, it is all self-help, if you will. You cannot rely on, on any influence from the outside. You have to take care of it yourself. Yeah, so it's kind of in that direction. So then once that happens the first time, then the instrumental comes back even faster with this extra punctuations in the percussion, this, this sizzle. Yeah, so we kind of doubled the density of the percussion here. And did you just like actually get a pot kettling? What is this this sizzling making this whole thing a little more evil, this section? That was another one of your sounds. That's another programmed, strictly electronic sound, actually. I think that's an, an actual virtual synthesizer sound. Usually we try to do everything either instrumentally and then distort the instruments or we use sounds that Alexander worked on before and did electronically or that I did electronically with my Roland. But in general, it's kind of basically that. We don't use really anything else besides that. So I like the idea of this as tribal that really makes sense of the just layers and layers of percussion that it's, you know, as if the whole tribe or the bunch of dancers and drummers are jumping around doing their various jams over each other, including, you know, you can throw in, if you're playing a regular drum kit, you do your tom fills, then you stop playing on the snare. But no, here, you can just keep everything going full tilt and still have some extra and just extra things that take up different spots in the stereo space or in the the area of available pitches. <laughs> you know, you've established that. Are you then going back overdub after overdub to kind of add a little more sauce to make the different parts distinct from each other? Particularly in this piece, it's in a way, in a positive way, but it is martialistic in a way. These are like the hordes and they're, they're coming in and they clear the space and you know, and you get like, you get the artillery and then you come, there's different gangs of percussions coming in and we gather these characters, we compile like a cast of characters and then we arrange them in the next step rather than starting on a, on a blank page. It's, it's more about taking away than adding on. So you kind of have most of the sounds determined beforehand as in this is going to be the palette from which we're drawing rather than we've got this drum layering. Let's look around for something else. Oh, let's add a little bit of xylophone or something just to go, you know, somewhere. Because I'm hearing all these little things peek out that don't sound like they're consistent characters. And I'm just, okay, I heard that once and then it didn't come back. But maybe that's just me not noticing things. It depends. I mean, we also kind of work on our pieces you know, a lot of people say that our music sounds like film scores, and it's kind of like we also have a kind of a film or some kind of thing in our minds. A narrative. A yeah. narrative, yeah. So it's kind of like, okay, let's do all of this, and then 
take away some to keep a little bit to give a little bit of air or and then oh well maybe we should add a little bit there or take a little away it's kind of like you know almost as if you were building a sculpture out of clay you add a little little away kind of like that Um, but you've got the body there already so sometimes we could like for instance if you hear one thing only once it could be that it was there at the beginning throughout the whole song but we took it away and only left it there that's possible too it just really depends on it's a very kind of instinctive way of working because we don't use regular kind of chorus verse thing. And so it's very kind of different with each song, actually. The musical pieces, they turn into entities, characters of their own, and they sort of tell us what they want us to do rather than we are sculpting them. <laughs> One thing that we actually really wanted to do this time, too, was to add more of the electronic sound atmosphere, kind of like. Specifically, I have wanted to add that for some time now and not only have like a pure instrumental thing. Because originally when we did our first album, Hitman's Heel, that was when we became nomads. And we said we want to do something that we could play on the street. So we had no overdubs. We only played specific instruments and that was it. That's basically where we started and we've been coming from. And this time, because I've been doing more with electronic stuff in my solo work, and Alex has always done a lot with electronics, we were kind of like, okay, we've found our sound with the different instruments that we play and the way he does throat singing and I do the lyrics and all that. But that one thing is still missing, that electronic area in which both of us have been working for a long time. We wanted to integrate that more into our music. So we were really working a lot on all of those sounds. It was important for us for this album. Before we go on, I need to stop for a sponsor break. If your life is anything like most of ours, something is wrong. And whether it's an identifiable real-life event... Or maybe it just seems like it's you, that something is interfering with your happiness, preventing you from achieving your goals. BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you. This is a service that is available worldwide, but there are 3,000 U.S. licensed therapists across all 50 states, including those specializing in depression, stress, anxiety, relationships, sleeping, trauma, anger, family conflicts, LGBT matters, grief, and self-esteem. You connect in a safe and private online environment You could use text, chat, phone, and video through desktop, mobile, web, Android, and iOS apps. BetterHelp lets you get help on your own time and at your own pace. Everything you say is, of course, confidential, and it is affordable. Financial aid is available for those who qualify. Nakedly Examined Music listeners can get 10% off your first month with the discount code NEM. You simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor you love. You could be talking to someone in as soon as 24 hours. If you don't like your counselor, they'll switch you to a different one at no additional charge. So whatever's going on with you, you don't have to deal with it on your own. Just go to betterhelp.com slash N-E-M. Well, let's get the second song out there. We can still come back to this if we want, but third from the sun, also from the current 2019. So this is a purely instrumental one. It's a bit longer. Only, you know, it's still less than seven minutes here, six, about six and a half. But it seems like, you know, the first song was driven, correct me if I'm wrong, it sounds like it was driven by, to some extent, how much you had to say in the lyrics. I mean, you could have repeated that help us, help us, help us thing, you know, twice as long, but it probably would have started to get a little strange. Whereas these instrumental things, especially once you get the full groove going about four minutes in this dance beat, like... That could go for 20 minutes if you wanted. And in some other settings, these songs have gone that long. Do you want to say a little about Third from the Sun before they hear it? Every time I hear it, I think, yeah, we should have done it three times as long. (laughs) 
you want to start dancing and then, you know, but we were trying to do shorter songs. Well, we didn't have a lot of time to do this record. We kind of did the whole record in little more than a month. Yeah, we, composing, recording, mixing, and mastering. Everything was done with, you know, like in four and a half weeks or something. And, it was crazy. Uh, and just for practical reasons, like we did with our meditation record, if you record a song that is 20 minutes long, you can only listen to it three times within one hour. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> it really was for strategic, practical reasons that we decided oh, if we want to have different pictures and different flavors on this, you know, they can't be all that long. Otherwise, we'd never get it done. Yeah, <laughs> because we really do like doing long songs. We comforted ourselves saying, well, we'll be able to play them much longer on stage. <laughs>
Yeah, so this really sets up a cinematic location, you know, very literally at the beginning that it's this cloudy mix of low swirling is it synths? What is it that we're hearing at the beginning here? It is a mixture of all kinds of things. I, I, let me tell you what Danielle told me what she wanted to do. She wanted to, to do a piece uh, demonstrating the, the beauty of the planet that we are living on, right? If I remember correctly. And, and so it is in a way very cinematic, you know, the way you get these representations of how you can zoom into the planet or into a map and detail and back out, like from space, zoom into the atmosphere and back out of the atmosphere and kind of floating about different forms of vegetation and different forms of, of landscapes and then back out into space. And, and that kind of image she told me about, and that's what we try to create there. Lately, I've been thinking a lot about our planet, and I think it's such a, a beautiful planet. On another song, I also wrote a small piece of spoken word about that. And I was like, you know, when you see our planet as a whole from space and you come closer and closer, the first thing you hear is like the sound of the earth because all planets have a specific sound. And then you come closer and then you hear like, you know, animals and trees and then you hear people and it's kind of, and then you hear the whole world population and then you fly past it. So that's, it's kind of supposed to be that kind of impression. It's funny how the character of these sounds maps onto the visuals that you're talking about, because I wouldn't have pictured from that, you know, some of the particular noises here, you know, that you got this low swirl that I guess is the sound of the earth, then this telegraph, you know, so we got some kind of sign of human communications. But then the next thing we hear is this, wow, this bass that jumps out. So I guess, is that the pedal you were talking about before, uh, Alex, or is this just a, a synth sound, this wow, wow, that kind of keeps coming back? Danielle came up with us. I don't know, but we shouldn't get too much into detail about interpreting the meaning of each and every sound because it's imperative that people don't have too much background information about <laughs> what, what they hear because it really all lives in, in your consciousness, what you come up with, your chain of associations and stuff like that. And I don't want to dictate that too much. <laughs> <laughs> No, that's fine. I just, it's such an interesting collection of players this time that you've got something I, I was just trying to, you know, interpret in my notes, uh, something that sort of sounds like seagulls, which maybe is violin. I don't know. I put reverb bagpipes or saxophone for something else. There's this electronic tinkling, these ghost sounds rising, just this really diverse mix of stuff that this is, you know, not all even though we do have a rhythm that starts about a minute in and kind of sets it up. Whereas the first song, you could say, okay, those are all, it's tribal in some way. This one is a little less clear to me, sort of what the overall, I guess maybe the point where the rhythm comes in kind of clarifies it a little bit. Let me just play that. So it's just like this far off marching kind of thing with these periodic lower hits. I mean, did you have an idea visually of, of what's going on as the rhythm kind of gets more and more present in the song? I've got this little flute in Istanbul. It's a, a couple Zuma, of, it's yeah, called. A Zuma, a couple of years ago in Istanbul. I've always, always wanted to play it. And I actually never did. And then I, when, when we were collecting our instruments to work, I was like, oh, I'm going to use this one. And then 
I played it. It's so loud. It's really small, but it's so loud. It's actually the first time I got Alex to say, this is too loud. <laughs> it's, it's actually more... It's actually more like a clarinet, it, but it's it, tiny. It's tiny, but yeah. it, but it has it works like a clarinet. So it has it's a reed instrument. It has yeah. this little it's mouthpiece very simple. where you squeeze this this reed mouthpiece together, and it's incredibly loud. It's kind of like a dying <laughs> duck, but it's like an incredibly loud dying duck. Well, yes, ex- that's bag. That's what describes bagpipes. So that's why, I guess why I made that connection. I was only allowed to play it a couple of times because Alex said that he just couldn't. It was just too loud. <laughs> it's, it's just a very uh, effective uh, piece. It's like a weapon, that thing. You know, it, it'll it'll cut through anything, no matter what you do. It's you can you, incredible. You can have like three Marshall stacks going with you know this, this torted guitars. That thing will cut through just by itself. It's, I'm actually really proud of <laughs> having achieved that because to be able to get somebody from Einstein and Neubau to tell me that I'm too loud. Or a little, a little flute is really an achievement. We start off with this sort of far off marching, but then this pretty detailed kind of tribal bongo thing comes in pretty quickly. And then I think it's not until about four minutes in. Yeah, where the density kicks up again, and then it's still another 20 seconds after that before we get this full dance beat that, like, okay, now the song has arrived and can sit there as long as it wants. Had you planned that sort of growth as you went? It's supposed to be like this drone kind of thing. You can imagine it as if, like, you know, a drone was flying over Europe and then down and through Africa. Not a musical over... drone, the, like the actual, yeah, like like the actual, actual drone. drone. It's supposed to be like, you know, a drone flying through Different all of layers these things of the and then all these yeah. layers compiling together yeah. to, like, create the sound of the Earth's rhythm, of life on Earth's rhythm, not Earth itself, because Earth we have had at the beginning – and then all the rhythms on top of it of life moving on Earth. And then afterwards you leave Earth again. And then you just have the drone of the Earth. And yeah, and for me, that four to the floor kind of kick in at the very end, that for me is symbolically represents human like architecture. That for me is like a four-four kick drum. <laughs> that, that is for me the equivalent of the 90-degree angle. In architecture, where it's just square. It, it doesn't get any more square than that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So then with that rhythmic bed, again, you start off with this really varied melange of sounds. And as we go into it, it seems to, to even out a little bit more that you've got this repeating guitar riff. Actually, that must be the bass through your special pedal. There's no actual guitar on the entire album. Ah, oh, wow. Okay. It is all done with, I, I play a, a bass six, which is a six string bass guitar. Basically like, like a guitar, but one octave lower. I have it tuned to an open tuning so I can play it with a slide and what have you. The thinnest string on that thing is a 26 gauge. So there's no, there's no actual guitar strings. Let me play near the end. There's kind of a solo. It's a little more drone-like than a solo. It's not a weedly weedly solo. What is taking the lead there? That's the hurdy-gurdy that I play. Oh, okay. 
I play Hurdy Gurdy and it's the Hurdy Gurdy. <laughs> yeah, no, I noticed that when that came in earlier in the song, this this swirling. Is it hard to mix <laughs> when you've got so many different kind of textures going on? Are you kind of pulling out, okay, we need to completely pull the highs off this because it's getting in the way of this other thing? Well, we had a wonderful engineer engineer that mixed our album this time, Victor Van Hoot. He's amazing because up to now, we've always mixed our things ourselves. And this time we thought we'd actually like to do it together with him. Yeah, I actually have somebody doing, didn't want to be multitasking that much. Yeah, because Alex always, you know, does all the stuff on the computer and then we do the music together and kind of gets exhausting. And especially because we had only four weeks, we're like, okay, this time we're going to actually Like writing, arranging, playing and engineering the album at the same time it was would have been a little bit of a overkill for me so we gave ourselves the luxury of working with an accomplished engineer for a change and so this way we also had the luxury of being able to actually step back from the picture a little bit and just like see how everything works together rather than going carving out the details on every single channel and on on every single voice and actually saying like, oh, this could work like that and that by taking a few steps back. And he has an amazing studio sound-wise too, really amazing. I mean, he's worked with Nick Cave and PJ Harvey. He's he's really great. And so sitting, because we, you know, a lot of times we record in um we do like guerrilla recording we just go anywhere with our stuff and record it so we usually do not have spaces that are necessarily sound wise really good i mean we recorded in blackpool in a not professional studio just in the space that we used as a studio so it was really great to be able to hear the music in his studio where you could hear every single sound really crystal clear and work on you know where is it too much where is it too heavy and And especially with the heights too, like, I mean, one thing that I'm always very conscious of is I do a lot of the high sounds and I don't like them to be too piercing. Like I hate it when a violin becomes too piercing. And so I really want the high sounds to sound, well, besides that one really loud dying duck sound, I like everything else to be a little softer. (laughs) And it was great to work on that in the studio. Usually we like working in spaces that are not acoustically improved or that that are not acoustically designed and and working in this kind of guerrilla way is very inspiring. Yeah. Because I find traditional studios usually if you if you need to go there in order to create something I kind of think that they are kill inspiration rather than doing the opposite. If something is too well designed acoustically and uh, to compose stuff to, to compose yeah. stuff in it i don't like that that was one of the reasons why we went to blackpool for example we we recorded a lot of the stuff in a airbnb on top of a uh, fish and chip shop that, <laughs> that kind of is a different kind of operation than doing it in abbey road studios Let's get one of those uh, gorilla recordings out there. If this, if this is what Menetekel, the album 2017 was recorded, that style of recording. Uh, the song was Prophecy. And this is, this is kind of in between. So we had a purely instrumental one. We had a, a more of a song one. And this is, sounds like a long instrumental that over which spoken word was put. 
So it's not necessarily, is that right that the spoken word did not necessarily, was it an afterthought in terms of what words exactly are going to go over this instrumentation? Or, or did you have the poem first and then come up with this thing behind it? Because we have the poem kind of at the beginning, near the beginning, and then a lot of instrumental for a long time. Well, I think that the background story is that we recorded a lot of that album in Austria in a church because we were doing a residency in Krems and they gave us an empty church that hasn't been used as a church for a very, very long time. It was actually used for a um, hay storage, yeah, salt, salt, salt storage salt space storage. for like <laughs> decades. But now it's it's used as a residency space and people can do shows and performances and concerts there. And we were able to work in that space for one month. And basically what we were mainly working with was Echo. So we were putting up my um it's a really big church in different parts of the room and we would like you know work with our instruments and with differently long echoes with our voices and stuff so during that time that we were doing that i would walk around in the church looking at it and trying to figure out kind of like what is the difference between that kind of architecture and a regular kind of architecture like how does the architecture of a church influence what happens within a church, be it religious or non-religious activity. So that was really, really interesting. And because of that, I also started thinking about the Bible or all kinds of different religions because we were in that environment. I'm not really religious in any way, but it was pretty interesting. And so at one point, I suddenly... I don't know. I was like outside. It's a very beautiful area. There's, it's an amazing wine area too, where, where we were. And there's these wine mountains everywhere. And I was looking at it and I was thinking, God, nature is so beautiful. And I suddenly thought, this is paradise. And I was like, Oh my God, we're still in paradise. And maybe that whole story was a prophecy. And that's how it came about. So it, it was all one, you know, like working in that church and, and thinking about religious stories and thinking about religious things and trying to not think about it in a church and trying to see a church just as an architectural building. So it kind of all happened at the same time. And what we did was we just recorded all kinds of stuff there. And then at the end, put the things together kind of like in the puzzle piece.
So this one has a literal atmosphere at the beginning, an actual windstorm with some thunderclaps. Did you record this storm yourself or was this, am I wrong? Is it, was this somehow created by instruments? A lot of that is done with my violin, actually. The birds. Well, yes, that high keening call, but just even the bass line under that. And you've got this, what's gunshots and thunder. Again, are these like actual samples of gunshots and thunder or is this things you're recording in the space? Samples of thunderclaps. Okay. Yeah, those, well, some of them are just samples that, of sounds that I made, and I worked on them so long until they actually sounded that way, distorting them and things. And then we got a, this is Hurdy Gurdy that's at a minute and a half or so that kind of comes in with the main melody. Is that right? Yes. And then we've got the poem itself, which is very deliberate. Is that just the style of poetry reading you do? It seems like it's kind of consistent over songs in terms of how many words per minute you're uttering. That it's very, you know, it lets you soak it up. You say a couple lines and then like, is it done? Oh, no, here's here's some more. I always try to kind of like not have it. It's hard to explain. I don't want to be actually speaking or and have it sound like somebody's talking or speaking or reading or the regular kind of recitation. I, I always try to somehow make it be part of the music, like for it itself to be music. I once had this really interesting experience that I had to read a German poem in an Italian performance where nobody could understand German. So I thought, okay, well, if nobody can understand what I'm going to say anyway, I might as well make it sound really nice. And so I basically just, I spoke the words, but I pronounced them differently than if you would have, if it would have been German. And so I thought it's actually really interesting because if you think of it, the voices only is sound and words are sound. And so that's what I try to do with my spoken word is to like, of course, the content is very important, but the sound itself, I try to make to be music and not necessarily see them as words. Do you have any particular influences? Like Laurie Anderson sort of comes to mind as somebody who I think similarly, you know, it's not just that she's reading a poem, like her particular very distinctive mode of recitation that is blending into the music in certain rhythmically interesting ways. I really like what she does, but not necessarily the way she speaks. So that wasn't really my influence. I had a hip hop band in the early 90s. That's where I discovered that I'm actually good at speaking or doing spoken word because they once said, you know, just pretend that you're this airport announcement. And I did it and everybody was like, wow, that was really good. <laughs> That's where it started. So, and because hip hop, you know, it was kind of like a hip hop crossover band. I did, a, I worked a lot with words and that's kind of where I, did, I kind of, also because hip hop is so rhythmic and it's important that you really, that the words again there are like an instrument. I think that's when it started, that I started really being interested in, in this kind of way or work with words. So would it dilute it somehow to just actually sing it rather than speaking in a slow, rhythmic, sing-songy kind of way to kind of go past back and forth between those? What, what's just your history in terms of, am I going to say it or am I going to sing it? Well, I think there's quite a difference between speaking or singing or saying or singing. Does it lose the potency if you wrap a melody on it that kind of distracts from what you're actually trying to say? Absolutely. I think so. Because there's people that I have, we have a friend who actually doesn't 
want to understand lyrics. So when he listens to music, he just ignores what the lyrics are saying. And um, I think that a lot of people actually do that, that when they're listening to a song, they don't necessarily listen to the lyrics. But if it's spoken word, you actually kind of have to. But then I don't really want to be that... Um, I don't want to be that schoolmasterly in a way. So that's why I try to soften it so that it's not really only being spoken, but it's kind of like weaving in and out of the music. It's also what I like about Danielle's work is she is internalizing the meaning of what she's speaking and she is actually vibrating the words she is speaking rather than just reciting them. There's an actual internal process while she recites those lyrics that would be different if it would, you know, she's not an actor. She's not interpreting the words in an ambivalent way like an actor would. It's her internal process that is conveyed in the way how she vibrates those words. And that's what I think makes it very extraordinary. And also I find that, for instance, funnily enough, when I listen to poets reading their poems, I often have difficulties concentrating. And so that's another reason why I often make pauses and stuff like that, because that's the time I need to understand the full depth of what I'm trying to say. And I kind of think that maybe people who are listening would need that much time too. So sometimes it can just be a word. I mean, even a word for me has an incredible power. We did a meditation album where I recite 108 words that make me happy. And every word when I was reciting it had the power to make me cry because words can be so strong. So sometimes when I take a break, I feel that that's what it's needed for that word to really unfold its complete depth. Yeah, I noticed that on your meditation soundtrack albums too, insofar as there are lyrics at all, it's kind of incantations, it's it's mantras, it's the power of this particular word as opposed to, well, that's obviously different than, you know, I want you to understand my poetry, so I'm going to read it deliberately, but it's in the same family of uses of language. Then the lyrics are done and there's still five minutes of the song left. <laughs> And this is another one that I feel even is less restrained, whereas the previous tune we talked about, kind of Third from the Sun, I feel like the progression of the rhythm sets a little bit, you know, is a little like the lyrics were in the banishing in setting the strictures of how long the song can go or, you know, what feels natural. What is determining in the, the latter portion of prophecy here? Is it this sort of growing, seems like you have, it's a growing, is it a viola? I mean, there's periodic, this... In fact, let me play 418, this Eastern violin melody, the first time it comes out. Yeah, so to me, that was the signpost. That and then there's all this churning and stuff that keeps going. And then after a while, that violin comes back. How do you think of the structure of something like this? For me, it was kind of similar, as you say, to the other song we were speaking about. In this one, it's more about the different religions coming together, the Eastern and the Western and the, you know, the Buddhism and the Islam and the Christian and somehow all of them coming together in this paradise that we still are, that we haven't been kicked out of and all of them kind of dancing together. That was the visual, mm -hmm. the, the thing I was visualizing while playing it. So I tried with a violin playing different harmonies to kind of present these different beliefs. These are all like oriental scales, what, what Danielle is, is playing there. And so the Orient as 
being the East as the source of light, symbolically speaking. We try to incorporate musical elements or ethnical elements that you would associate with the Orient in order to convey this source of light, rather. And I play um, a bunch of the entire percussion track is done on all kinds of different Oriental, like frame drums and and hand drums and these kind of things. And for me, I always in, envision um, Oriental celebration. What I say is from the Bible. Yes. And so in that way, basically, you bring together, we bring together all these different sources of light, so to say, to kind of like see that they actually even harmonically work together because a couple of things that we play are not in that harmonic thing. And so it's there's like all these different sounds coming together to create the one big sound once more of everybody being together in this dance in our paradise. Well, it sounds like the last character to enter this dance, this is about eight minutes, 19 seconds in, Sounds like it's the snake. Let me play what... It almost sounds like a flugelhorn. Was that based through effects or? It actually is. This is, is one of the, uh, the few cameo appearances on this record. It actually is somebody playing a trombone, I believe, recorded also in the church as our fans. Richard Klammer, he's an accomplished brass virtuoso from Austria, and he is actually playing those either trumpets or trombones. He, I, I think both. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I, I did. Both. Yeah, we we did uh, extensive recordings <laughs> with him in in the church. Yeah, and that's what that is. <laughs> yeah, it's either a high trombone or a, that's why I said flugelhorn because it seemed like I just couldn't tell it was not. It's not piercing like a trumpet. It's not super high or anything. Yeah. 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 Actually, let me ask you about the dance. Do you think in terms of time signatures, is this whole thing in, sounded like it's in maybe 6-4 or 3-4, or sometimes it just, you know, it's definitely got a, just a constant pulse to it, so you could kind of think of it in one. But wh how did you think of it as you were doing this? Uh, I, I don't don't remember this particular piece, but what the actual time signature is, but I do love odd time signatures. When we spent time in Istanbul, we did this documentary about the musical scene in, in Istanbul in 2004, and I spent some time there, and I, I learned about how Orientals work rhythmically and, and how they count and stuff like that. And since then, I've been obsessed with with odd rhythms that way i i think they're just so interesting and so what they do to you physically and mentally i think is it just goes so much further than our stereotypical western four to the floor one two three four and everything's in aids and it really is boring when you think of it and there's so much more i think also it's a prejudice to say that Odd rhythms like a five four or or nine eight and stuff like that that they are inconceivable to a Western person or that they are too intellectual and stuff. If you if you spend some time with these signatures, you can really find a place in your body where they reside and where they resonate with you. And spending a lot of time and effort in promoting to overcome these prejudices against against odd rhythms. I love them. <laughs> the movie was called Crossing the Bridge, The Sound of Istanbul by Fatih Akin. There's some really funny scenes with Alex 
and a couple of Roma musicians vary each other and doing different ways of, of counting, which is, is pretty incredible. So you can just interpret it as like that's how that's why it's so intuitive. It's only kind of where you try to listen to where do the phrases end, where do they repeat that you start thinking like, wait, is this in three? Is this in six? But you know, there's still like this core. So it's very different than you know, take five, but that where the extra beat is kind of meant to kick you in a certain way. Like this is just more you know complexity on top of a basic something you can feel with your heartbeat. What I learned from Turkish musicians is the way they count a seven, eight, for example, is they count everything that is in twos first, and then they add the three. So a seven, they would count one, two, one, two, one, two, three, one, two, one, two, one, two, three, one, two, one, two, rather than counting to seven. If you make yourself move and if you make yourself swing that way, you can comprehend and get into very complicated rhythms. Well, thank you so much for doing this. Before we get out of here, we're going to stick in one more song at the end. I thought we might as well put something from the release before this, which is actually a Danielle solo album. But I see, Alex, you mixed it. You did some engineering uh, from the album Deliverance 2019. The song was Survivors. Do you want to say a little about that before we say goodbye and, and leave them with that song? That album, when I was writing it, I actually had planned again on writing something that was very uplifting, but it turned out that I had a lot of things to say about <laughs> things that weren't necessarily uplifting. And my album as such has become quite, well, not dark, but quite serious. And so I felt that I definitely have to find something for myself, which is in a way uplifting. And this song is what that's about, Survivors. And I think that the sentence in this song, which is the most important for me, is, you know, we're living on this planet and we're in the middle of space and there's like nothing else far and wide. Um, and we don't know what's going to happen. We don't know where we are. And there's nothing we can hold on to except each other. And every time I say that, every time I perform it, I have to stop for a second because it always touches me again and again, because basically that's what it comes down to. You know, we're here together and yeah, we can just give each other strength and support. And it's really important to remember that. And I think remembering that might help us all to find a happy end. <laughs> all right. Any final words, Alexander? A word. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, thanks to you both. This was great talking to you both about this wonderful partnership. Looking forward to hearing the next thing. Oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thanks for having us. Yes, it's been a pleasure. Sometimes... When I'm sitting alone in the subway or in the cafeteria or on a plane watching people I have to think of the fact that we live on a planet which is racing through a mysterious black universe of which we know nothing except that it is endless and that we are a mere tiny particle lost in this vast realm hurtling around 
And yet we do our chores. We feed our cats. Try to survive taxes, politicians, and talk shows. Pointedly ignoring the fear that hovers over our heads. Balancing the sky and the heavens with nothing to hold on to except each other. And in spite of this impossible situation, we believe in justice, in honesty, and decency. And that there will be a happy end. And I feel touched by the fact that we are so weak and yet so tenacious, so ignorant and yet so hopeful that we refuse to give up or in. And I look around and see the lined faces, the gray hair, the heavy bags, the worn out shoes, and am amazed that the magical spark of survival is always there, willing to overcome, to stubbornly resist all odds. And I feel a wave of awe sweep away my doubts and worries. And I feel a joy so strong that I suddenly believe there could be a happy end in spite of it all. Thank you so much to Danielle and Alexander. I normally resist interviewing more than one person at a time, but I really liked witnessing this chemistry in action and the way they think about music together. And like I said, I am really hoping to circle back to Einstein de Neubauten and delving into their creative and fun history on another interview later. I'm actually kind of glad I didn't have to interview Alexander about that by himself because... On listening to any given Neubauten song, I don't know who did what. I don't know which songs Alexander is mostly responsible for. If you want to hear some samples of the older projects of both these musicians, I will be linking to them from the blog post associated with this episode at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. So that was really my last 2019 interview. Everything from here on out is 2020. Next being Chris McQueen, guitarist for Snarky Puppy and Fork, F-O-R-Q. I've recorded three since then. Most recently with the folk singer Casey Clifford, look her up. It is right now, to my mind, the worst part of the winter, at least in my part of the world. I hope you're all doing well, staying healthy. If you wouldn't mind going on the iTunes store or wherever you get your episodes here and leaving a nice rating or review for this podcast, I'd really appreciate it. Maybe share this episode around. 
And of course, I welcome anyone's support at patreon.com slash nakedly examined music. Until next time, keep on musicking. This is Mark Meyer signing off. your passion into a business of Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records.